I'm Matt Swain, and you're listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges facing companies on the road to optimizing their communications for the future. Today, I have Jeffrey Hazlett joining me by phone. Jeffrey is a global business celebrity, speaker, best-selling author, and chairman and CEO of C-Suite Network. Jeffrey is also a well-traveled public speaker, former Fortune 100 CMO, and author of four best-selling business books, Think Big, Act Bigger, The Rewards of Being Relentless, Running the Gauntlet, The Mirror Test, and The Hero Factor, How Great Leaders Transform Organizations and Create Winning Cultures. Jeffrey, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Certainly. So so tell me, what are you up to these days? You know, right now I'm on a book tour, so I just kicked off my brand new book, uh, The Hero Factor, and it's got me going all over the place, doing radio interviews, podcast interviews, uh, television interviews, and then, of course, hitting the stages. I'll probably hit the stage about 150 times this year uh, talking about the new book. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I was thinking about this ahead of time, and, and I would say an interview with you is like a choose-your-own-adventure book in itself. And <laughs> you put the At least you put the quarter in, you get to go for the full ride, you know? Exactly. So I have buckled my seatbelt, and I'd like to dive right in and, and actually maybe start with, with something from the mirror test, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. That'd be great. So you talk about transparency and authenticity in that book, and, and you can't separate yeah. who you are from what you do. And I'd love to have you expand on that, but also play it back in the context of the culture of that company leaders create and how that sets expectations for how customers interact with them. Well, I, you know, I actually expand the concept greatly in the new book, The Hero Factor, as well, because I'm really about radical transparency and about just, you know, living who you are and being who you are. You know, I find, you know, I've, I'm out in the speaking world quite a bit, and I watch a lot of speakers, I, lo- I watch a lot of thought leaders try to be somebody that they're not, you know, how do I be a thought leader? Well, have some fricking thoughts, you know, uh, how do I, and by the way, if you're going to be a thought leader, if you're going to, you're going to have to have haters, you're going to have to have all these different pieces to it as well, because you're there to push it. And the key thing though, is for any business person or anyone that's thinking about being a brand. Okay. And what's a brand? A brand is, is something that we always put on a cow and occasionally a horse. That's where the word came from, but it's really about a promise delivered. And so it's really getting you fundamentally focused. And that's what the mirror test was around, was to look in the mirror and decide who do I want to be? What do I want to be? And I'm real clear that you, you can't be you can't say one thing and then be something else. You ha- they have to be tied to each other. And so to get back to your original point, when you see a CEO come into the room or into a restaurant or into a conference or somewhere, you see the company. When you see the company, you should see the CEO as well as every employee in the operation because it's so it should be tied to your culture and your culture should be tied to the values and the values should be expressed. And, and what I've been seeing for a long time is we're trying to separate all that stuff. And even to the point, Matt, where I, I actually in this last book, a whole section of the hero factor is, is aimed at pick a side, pick a flipping side. We, 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 we try to say, well, we can't do that because we're a company. Oh, the heck you can't. Pick a side. If it, I don't care if it's the Me Too movement, if it's about taking a knee, uh, it's about whether or not you believe Trump is right or Congress is right or whoever. I don't care. Pick a side. You know, that's why I say, actually, this whole, you know, all the stuff going on with Trump, you know, is actually a pretty good thing. You might not like him. I don't care. That's up to you. It doesn't make a difference. 
you know, he's a friend of mine. I still think he's kind of batshit crazy, but he's, you know, but nonetheless, pick a side. And I want more and more businesses to do that. So that's why you can't separate you, you from the business. That's why the image of you, you is tied to the image of your business, you know. So there you go. Let's jump to Trump, because I distinctly remember watching when as chief marketing officer at Kodak, you had the celebrity apprentice teams on the streets of New York in Airstream trailers, and they were competing oh. to come up with the best marketing pitch oh, yeah. for Kodak as a cost-effective ink producer. And and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts of, about that experience as the, the first time you, you participated. And then also, I'd be curious about whether or not those were marketing dollars well spent. They were the best marketing dollars I think I ever spent uh, because it started putting Kodak back then back on the map because we were off the map for such a while. You know, we were just living in the hubris of our success and living, living in an old story rather than a new story of who we really were. In fact, that episode was very clear because on the one hand, you had these you had these two Airstream buses and one team, you had one team, it was a scrappy team and the, the campaign looked like crap, but the message was right. And then you had the other team, which was led by Gene Simmons and Nellie Golan and, and some of the women that were, you know, it was a women's team and a men's team except right. Gene Simmons, you know, he, he chose the women's teams because only Gene Simmons could, right? And Gene Simmons and I got in a fight in that, in that episode, by the way, and it went on for months so much so they had to bring me back on the on the finale on the stages of Saturday Night Live, and and he and I had a debate live, uh, you know, during the finale. So yeah, dollars well spent, without question. But you know, it was you know, uh, it was just a great experience for us, a good way for us to get it out there and and get the message. And and so we had one team that was really showing the old Kodak. It's a Kodak world living it, which was the message of the old company, the hubris of its success. Right? I mean, it's like, hey, well, film's never dying, you know. Or it, it was almost like I remember years ago that the Iraqi PR guy for Saddam Hussein who says, what, what, what invaders? There are no invaders. Meanwhile, U.S. Right. tanks were rolling behind him, you know, <laughs> Baghdad Bob or whatever his name was. Yeah. Anyway, that is, and then the other team was, was, you know, Lennox Lewis and Pierce Morgan. And they were, I mean, these guys were scrappers and that was the whole campaign was, and it was all about pricey ink stinks. And, and it was just, it was, it, it was spot on. It led us to go on to the, to, uh, to sponsor two more years. You know, I was a judge there three different times, appeared on about, I think, about nine episodes. And, yeah, it was probably one of the best rallying cries for the new Kodak at the time and the products that we were selling. So it gave us a voice, a voice that we didn't have and a voice that we could somewhat control, although it was not without its controversies. You know, you know, to have, you know, a, you know, Gene Simmons, you know, a rocker and so forth. Is he the right voice for a Kodak? But but we had good people like Nellie Golan, who was a, a spokesperson for us for a long time and just a wonderful gal in the Hispanic community. And then other other great people that, that came about. And I, by the way, I, I formed some really good friends off the show as a result of it. As a Fortune 100 CMO, how do you decide to allocate that marketing spend? How did you decide that that's where the money should be going? It, you know, some of it's gut, but you have to have what, what I would call conditions of satisfaction. You have to kind of figure out, you know, what's the reach of voice? What's the relevancy? You know, what will be the reciprocity? What will come as a result of it? Bottom line, what's your ROI? So you have to have some measurements around that. You know, at, at, at the level of which a Fortune 100 officer is operating, you know, at that time, me, you have to have a good gut and you have to have a lot of experience to make those kinds of decisions. Now, you know, let's, let's take in mind what that, what that cost was just, it was a few million dollars here or there. Now I say that like, oh my gosh, but you know, I was dealing with a $17 billion budget. 
So inside of that budget, this was a small expenditure, even though it's still a large expenditure, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a, you know, it's, it's I mean, $2 million or $4 million or $6 million is, is $2 million, $4 million or $6 million. But you also can't just look at the direct cost because uh, whenever you make a decision like that, then there's activation cost around it. So let's take like the Olympics. Whereas the Olympics might cost you, um, you know, a 20 million or a 200 million dollar investment, or say, let's say it's 40 million, then it's two and a half times the money. So you have to have a formula that then you put to it that says it's going to be this, but to really get the most out of it, we're going to have to have that cost, and that's what you have to start taking into consideration. And and you know, and there's a lot of CMOs who know how to do that uh, at that level. There's not a lot, I will tell you that. And I've known some really great CMOs in my career. And, and and know a number of them, and those are some yeah to to move those things and to do those things, you have to have some some good knowledge or at least a good a good base of of saying how you want to measure it. You know what is it when we're done? What are we going to get out of it? You know, is it sexy? Is it fun to do those things? Yeah, come on. But you know, there's also some risk. You know, if you remember back on the show, he had a couple of Playboy models and right, you know, stuff like that. You know, I think one of them was a porn star at one point, right? Imagine if she would have won that task. You know, I would have had to deal with that, good or bad, you know. So you could say that's probably not on brand, but, you know, at the same time, it creates a lot of uh, voice of brand, right? Right. It gets a conversation started, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, you know, once I got to tell you, that's a kind of a cool offshoot of that. Once my CEO told me, because I came up with a campaign once and it was kind of risque and he said, you know, anybody can be cheap. You know, and what he meant by that is anyone can go for sex or anyone could go for comedy. It takes a really great marketer to go for message. <laughs> and I went, wow, that was smart. Some of that was good advice for me. I think you're also in that position of wanting to take some risks, but at the same time recognizing that you have to be willing to fail. And one of those that you had uh, outlined was, uh, I think, text messaging tied to movie previews. Was that was that what it was? Yeah, yeah, that was an offshoot of this Celebrity Apprentice thing. Um, yeah, we did a we did a text messaging campaign in motion picture theaters. Well, how many of you? What do you do? With, what do you do when you walk into a motion picture theater? You turn off your phone, you know. So, so guess what? When we spent you know a few million dollars and. And we did this big campaign with this great ad featuring Vinny Pastore from from The Sopranos, a great, great commercial that pre-tested into the double digits. And yet when we ran the campaign, we got like two texts, <laughs> two right. nationwide, right. not like two million, two texts. You know, it's like, and I said, well, this has got to be a typo. And they go, no, Mr. Hazel, it's not. And I go, oh, my God, uh, I'm going to have to stand before the board of directors and the chairman of this company. I'm going to have to explain why we did this, you know. And and then I said, what happened? What happened? And finally, someone said, Jeff, what do you do when you uh, when you walk into a motion picture theater? I said, what? And he goes, you, you turn off your phone. I went, crap, well, you know, where the heck were you when we came up with this idea? And, and, and that's just one of those things you didn't, we didn't think through to capture the behavior, which is, I think, one of the most critical things marketers must do. Winners in company must do is to capture behavior. You capture behavior. Man, you can take it to the bank. And, and and we didn't do that. And we tried to do it differently. And so, yeah, but um, but we changed it. We redid it. And we turned it into a positive digital campaign and took it off the, out of the motion picture theaters at the time. Uh, although the motion picture theaters was the right move. It was the right move. That was a we were going after what we call high burners uh, for inkjets. 
inkjet printing business as we were moving from a number 20 position, number 14 position, all the way up to number two in the marketplace, which we did over a two-year period. But to do that, um, you know, yeah, you have to take some risk. And I took some risk. I screwed up and failed. I, but you know what, Matt? No one, no one died. Right. No one died. No one died in that process. And so, and I think that's the key thing you have to kind of remember you know, when you take risk and, and that's what real leaders need to do is you, you're going to have to take risk and understand you, you're going to fail. I mean, all these people right now, it's, it's really fashionable to fail. Well, hey, stupid, everybody's going to fail. OK, you know, um, everybody always asks me, what's my biggest failure? I said, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. You know, um, meaning I'm going to keep doing it. You know, f- failure is just my fast way of getting to a win. OK, could I that's I want to win fast, not lose fast. I want to win fast. And so my, my philosophy, and I think real high growth, like the folks we have in our Hero Club um, and the C-Suite Network, they're really high growth, and, but they're focused on winning fast, not on failing fast. So the one other point that I wanted to touch on, you're talking about taking risks, and I've, I've done a number of focus groups with marketers around budget allocation and specifically around barriers to use of direct mail. You know, given that at the time you were trying to sell ink on paper, did you feel obligated to allocate a fair amount of budget to direct mail? And, and did you see value in it? Oh, absolutely. I still see value in that. I mean, it's still a trusted source. It's just getting the right kinds of pieces to the right kinds of targets. You know, you can still use it very effectively without question. Now, a lot of people call it junk mail, but highly effective uh, conversionable messages, regardless of where they're going or how they're delivered or effective. And that's the key word. And so whether they're text messages or uh, they're, you know, um, you know, it's a, a, a package, I could still I could still do a FedEx campaign where I could deliver, you know, um, a chocolate, a glass of a mug. I did this once. I did. A, I sent everybody uh, warm cinnamon buns overnight. I had them made next to the facility at the FedEx and we overnighted them so that the next morning they arrived to everybody's offices with a cup of cocoa, um, yeah. you know, so you could just add hot water and uh, one of those Cinnabon buns or whatever. And we did those overnight. And man, I had one of the best returns on that campaign you ever have. But, you know, it, it, but again, it's about it's about being effective, right? And having something that's going to be effective. Not saying you'd use it all the time. I mean, there's sometimes you don't use text messages. You don't over, I mean, I think text messages are extremely effective right now. But I don't overuse it, right? I think email's effective. I try not to overuse it. I think LinkedIn in-mail messages are effective. I, but, and, but at the same time, let's be clear, I think, I think printing is very effective still. Yeah, absolutely. Whether, whether it's print or email or text, I, I think you're right that it's quantity and frequency. And the more frequent you are, the less, the less likely you are, you are to get that, uh, that attention. You're not going to feel as special. So I think it is a smart, a smart use of all channels. Yeah, let's imagine you if you're a cruise ship and you want to send out a cruise brochure, well, don't send me a brochure filled with a bunch of young people in it because uh, I'm not young anymore, all right? But you send one that's appropriate, got versions of people my age, nah, that makes sense, you know? You can versionize it, but more importantly, you could customize it. I mean, you know, one of the best things uh, some car manufacturers do is they, they know what you bought. They know what you bought. By the way, I bought the same color car the last two cars, the last two, same. How about I don't know about you, probably the same. So chances are I'm not going to change again. So when you send me a brochure for the new model pickup truck, okay, maybe you want to send me 
you know, versions of that in the same colors I have bought before. And, and, and then, you know, I live in South Dakota, so don't send me, you know, city landscapes of my truck in a city landscape because there is no city <laughs> landscape in South Dakota. <laughs> you know, and, and there's just, you know, these are just smart things to do. And the other thing is sometimes in the, if your email isn't getting through, then mix it up, change it up. You know, I send people video messages. I send people handwritten messages and I overnight them. And I, I have video mailers that um, I put on your desk that look like, a, you know, an iPad to some extent that when you open it up, there's a written message from me. And then there's a video message that says, hey, Matt, you know, and I, I find those on people's desk a year later. Yeah, exactly. That's what you're striving for is is not being just another marketing piece or other advertising. It's it's how, how do I get that desk space? And that that's the ultimate trophy. Which gets back into you where we were talking about, you know, a minute ago about budgets or about people getting in your way and so forth and so on about how you do things. And, you know, and that's the, the cool thing about it, about, you know, versioning, customizing, doing the things you want to do from a marketing or running your business the way you want to or having diversity or having transparency, uh, having clear sets of values. You know, companies that we found, you know, by the way, 28 percent of employees don't even know their company's own values. And, and I know that if you, if you have great values and everybody knows who they are, you make more money, you gross more money, you have happier employees, better customers, better vendors, and the whole bit. And all because you can. And therein lies the difference. So I, I think that, that one of the themes that you're hitting on here is, is change and taking risks. And I, in running the gauntlet you let out with, driving change in business can feel like running the gauntlet every day, threatening hostile and scary and the only way to survive yeah so that was that was almost eight years ago do you think businesses have taken this to heart is it as relevant today as it as it was then yes i could go give that same speech and retool that book and still still get it out there yes it's of course we still haven't learned the same lessons otherwise we'd all be doing it right and it is like running a gauntlet man you run a gauntlet every day in your business somebody says hey we should do this and then here they come all right. And we, and we know what a gauntlet is. This is when the, the, the Crow Indians or the Sioux Indians would, would capture you and you were a trapper back in the 1820s or whatever it might be. And they would line them all up and they would have sticks and knives and stones and they would make you run through the middle of it and then say, if you survive, we might let you go. Right. And that's what it, that's what it's like in corporate America every day or in most companies. You know, the, the, you, you come up with the greatest idea or the best change or a needed change or a, a way in which to to move the company forward. And they make you run the gauntlet. And here's what they start saying. Yeah, oh, we don't have a budget for that. We tried that once before. You know, um, you know, if you right. do that, you're going to get fired. I mean, we can go all the way down. I, in fact, I think in the, in the book, I, I'm pretty sure I did it in the book, or I, maybe it was in my last book, Think Big, Act Bigger. I put a, I put pages of, of a list of excuses, <laughs> of all the excuses that people had uh, or that they would give around just, just why you can't do something. I'm down to, you know, my dog ate the homework, so to speak. And, and you, know, you just have to overcome that. You just have to, you know, to all the naysayers, you know, people who say no and obstructions who stand in the way. You know, I dedicated this book to, to, to everyone that says, we will beat you. You know, we will beat you. That innovators and, and, and real entrepreneurs and, and leaders of, of great businesses that hold the highest values, we will beat you. Um, it may take us forever, but we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And that's what the right, you know, and if you got good people and you got good standards and good values and great ideas, then we should beat you. 
we should get it done. And there's nothing that you're, you know, you're going to keep doing. We will never, we will never give up. We will never stop. And I think that's an important thing to remember. You know, if I look at the last decade of aggressive technology disruption, I, I would say it's unique, but you'd probably say, well, look at the decade before it and the one before that and, and how businesses had to adapt. But, but ultimately, you talk to a lot of business leaders. Do you get a sense that business leaders today are that much better groomed for today than those business leaders of 10 years ago for their decade? I think so. I, I do. I do. I think if you look back over history, there was less of that in, innovation, more follow the tried and true. And, and we don't always know what the tried and true is. But I do think, and especially the way things are coming at you in terms of information, you know, I, I tend to, I say I'm a millennial trapped in a baby boomer's body, you know, and you, and I think you have to have that kind of a mentality. But I do believe there, yeah, I do believe because digital has allowed us to, to find the answers quicker and better and solutions, you know, readily. And, and, then, and then the infrastructure of the ecosystems, these big sequoias, you know, and there's, and what do we mean by that? So to me, there, and I heard this and I can't remember the speaker. It was a guy that had came up with, oh, it's Chatter, I think it was the name. I can't remember his business, but he talked about, I was watching him on Bloomberg one day and, um, and he was talking about sequoias and sequoias, when they grow and it takes them a long time and they're big and they're huge, they have this huge canopy and underneath this canopy becomes this environment or ecosystem. Well, you got that with like Salesforce and Oracle and you know Facebook and Twitter and some of these others. And I really believe that there's greater ecosystems today that give us greater tools that allow us to move faster. And, and I think that's pretty cool. And so, so who you align yourself with allows you some leverage and tools that we didn't have before. You had to go do all that yourself, you know, as opposed to like, if you, you, you sign up for Salesforce and and if you, you want to do something like, I don't know, uh, like we do some things in the C-Suite Network or the Hero Club where we do events. Well, we were doing RSVPs an old-fashioned way, right? And then I said, well, geez, go look in Salesforce. They got to have something like that, you know, or we need a texting solution. Go look in Salesforce. They got to have a million of them. And, of course, in their their apps and they're underneath the canopy, they have a ton of them. So, I, I you know, I do believe that it's easier and faster and you didn't have that. Um, you didn't have that 20 years ago. You didn't have that 50 years ago. You sure didn't have it 100 years ago. And I think um, it's just allowing us a lot, a greater scale quicker than we've ever seen before. And um, the key is to how do you, how do you find the scale? How do you find, how do you take your business from one dimension to two or three or even four to 4D faster? And that's, that's kind of where I'm focused on that today. Yeah. And I, I think you're, you're hitting on an important inflection point, which is more likelihood to buy versus build than historically it was a build versus buy. I learned a big lesson this summer when, when Dan Burris, he's a futurist, hit me over the head with something. He, he I was in a meeting with a group of uh, people like me that make money from our IP. And we were all sitting around. I'm talking about how I'm going to scale my business. And I was like, but I got to invest in this. I got to go out and buy this. And they finally just leaned over and said, Jeff, X is a service. I go, Dan, what the heck are you talking about? X is a service. He goes, why do you have to build it? Why can't you just why can't you just find somebody that will partner with and they do it? And I, I sit there for a minute and I go, that's one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard you say. And now I'm, I'm moving on it and I'm, I'm going to probably hit more than 400 percent growth this year. Oh, congratulations. Thank you very much. And so all because of listening to good people, but then taking advice, you know, here's a cool thing, I'll, you know, I'll leave with everybody that's listening as well. Um, you know, an idea without implementation is just air. 
And, and the cool, cool thing is to get an idea like that, but then go implement it. So immediately after that, we're moving now to create, you know, C-Suite Speakers Bureau, C-Suite Publishing. Um, we had an academy. We tried to do that, tried to do it ourselves, failed miserably at it. And now I'm, I've got great partners. I just go at X as a service. That's great. And I do have one closing question for you here, which is if we look at the theme of reimagining communications and tie it back to think big, act bigger, how do you think businesses should think big and act bigger relative to how they communicate with their consumers, their customers and shareholders? Try things. So we believe in companies that we own the brand and we don't own the brand. And again, I told you what a brand is. Brand is nothing but a promise delivered. Something we occasionally put on a, a you know a horse, but always a cow. But it became a promise delivered. And we think that we are the owner of the brand and we're not the owner of the brand. The brand is owned by the people we do business with, by the people who serve us, the people that uh, that vend to us as well. And so what what is it that we can do with the brand to get it out there more and faster and quicker and bigger? That's what we should be doing. And so, so many times we're so protective and inwardly thinking, we stifle, we stifle things. So my big thing for most people is to focus in on how we might do things differently, how we might do things better, how we might just try it. And if you make a mistake, if you make a mistake, no one's going to die. No one will die. And by and large, in the stuff that you're doing, the way in which you're doing it, so give it a shot. And if you do make a mistake, own up to it. Tell people. They don't mind. because And they'll appreciate that you gave it your best shot. So, and, and I've done that over and over and over. And so that's one of the best things I would tell people when it comes to communications and it comes to expressing yourself and comes to, to, to adding zeros to the things you're doing today is to go try. And if you make a mistake, no one dies. Jeffrey, thank you, as always, for your perspective. Well, thank you very much for having me. I wish we had more time. Well, next time, we will follow up on your fifth book, which uh, we haven't heard about yet, but I'm sure you're already working on. It's coming soon. Yeah, they're already working on it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, with that, I'm Matt Swain, and you've been listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast. To learn more about Broadridge, our insights, and our innovations, visit broadridge.com or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. 